When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You guys can be seated, please. Um, I'm going to start with a, a question. There will be several more to follow this morning. And the question simply is, is how can a diverse people act with a single-minded agenda? Uh, if you were to take a group of people who come from different cultural backgrounds, different languages, different places in the world, and you were to put them all together, and, and they have all of these differences between them, um, uh, different uh, political ideologies, different ideas about um, personal goals and personal um, uh, uh, careers, or even you know how to, to raise children differently. You, you, you take all the, the, this, this big group of people who, who have all of these differences, and you put them together. Um, how is it that they can be uh, united? How, how could they come together with, with a single mind and a single uh, purpose? Uh, we're going to be looking at several questions this morning, and so that's one that, that, that I want to begin with. We're going to come back uh, to that a little bit later, but uh, these questions hopefully will, uh, will prompt you to, uh, to, to dig a little bit deeper into your own heart um, and to, to ask these questions and, and maybe to, to, to rely upon the Holy Spirit to provide those answers uh, for us this morning as we look at our text. Um, one of the keys to, to help us understand what we're going to be looking at in Acts 4 is something that Jesus said in his earthly ministry in Matthew 25. He gives us a parable, and a parable is a, it's, it's, a, it's a short sort of story that has a, a profound truth uh, within it. And so he tells this parable, and the parable goes like this. There's a rich man, and he's going to go away uh, for, for a long period of time, and he, he brings his servants together, and he, he gives to each one of them a different amount of money. And the idea is that they take his money and they do with it uh, something that will bring him um, some, uh, some benefit. They're taking his, his money and they're meant to use it for his purposes. And so the first one is given five talents. Talent just being a, 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 a denomination of money. He's given five talents. And so uh, this individual, he goes out and he takes that five talents and he invests it and, and he, he earns five talents more. The second one, he's, he's given two talents, and so he takes those two talents, and he goes out, and he, he invests those, and, and likewise, he comes back with two talents more. The third one, he's given one talent, and he goes out, and he digs a hole in the ground, and he buries it. Now, after a long period of time, according to, to Jesus' story, the master comes back, and he calls his servants together, and, uh, and he asks them about what they've done. And so the first guy comes in, and he says, you gave me these five talents, and here's five more. And his master says, well done, 
Good job. Uh, the second guy comes in and he, he says, well, you gave me these two, two, uh, these two talents and, 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 and the master says, well done, good job. You, you, you took that, you, you, you duplicated it. The third guy comes in having uh, dug his talent out of the ground and he comes in um, mainly with an accusation. And he, and he says to him, the, to the master, I know that you're a harsh man. I know that you reap where you don't sow. I know what, you, you collect what you haven't, you haven't planted. In other words, what he's saying to him is, I know you're an authority over me. I know that you have power over me. But the thing is, is I, I think that you have accumulated what you have because you've taken it from other people without earning it yourself. And so you're not going to earn anything off of me. Here's your talent back. And the master says, you are a wicked and you are a lazy servant. He takes the talent from him and he gives it to the one who has five And in Jesus' words, this servant is cast into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Pretty sobering image, don't you think? But Jesus, he, he makes this statement in regards to what happened. He says, to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. To the one who has, more will be given. We're gonna come back to that uh, time and time again this morning as we look at this. To the one who has, more will be given. This is going to be helpful in understanding what it is that we're looking at here in Acts chapter 4. So, um, we're doing this, this series called Under the Influence, and we're coming back to it periodically over the course of 2021. And, and this series is really a, about addressing the question, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? We, we come to the book of Acts and we see um, in, in number, numerous places where uh, people are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we want to look at them and we want to see what happens and, and, and what we can learn from that as we desire to be a people that are, uh, in fact, filled with the Holy Spirit. And so last week, we looked at the first part of Acts chapter 4. We saw Peter and John, uh, two disciples of Jesus, two apostles of Jesus, and, um, and they are arrested. They're arrested for the very first time and they're arrested for preaching the name of Jesus and for healing people in the name of Jesus. And so uh, they're, they're brought into this courtroom. It's basically the supreme court of the Jewish people. It's called the Sanhedrin. There's 72 people there. And it's these same 72 people who falsely tried, falsely convicted, falsely condemned Jesus to death. It's this, this very same group of people that they're standing in front of. And, and the goal of this group of people is to intimidate Peter and John, to intimidate them and to, to get them to stop proclaiming and healing in the name of Jesus, and it didn't work. It says that Peter and John were filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and so they, they weren't intimidated, they weren't fearful, um, they, they weren't also filled with some sort of false bravado that would come from maybe liquid courage. Um, they, 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 weren't, um, they weren't angry, they weren't resentful, they weren't bitter, they weren't uh, full of malice towards the same people that killed their Savior. Instead, they were respectful, they were, they were direct, they were bold, and they proclaimed the truth of who Jesus is. And, and, and they said, we cannot but proclaim what we've seen and what we've heard. And so this, the, the, these group of leaders, they can't really do anything to Peter and John because standing right there with them is this man who for over 40 years w- w- was lame and who spent most of his life begging right outside of the temple, a man that they had passed a hundred times or more, passed on almost a daily basis as he was begging for food. And there he is, he's standing and he's healed and he's been healed in the name of Jesus and thousands of people have seen it. And so these re- religious rulers, they can't do anything. So they, they threaten Peter and John not to preach in the name of Jesus, and they send them on their way. 
And so that's what we, we saw last week, and that's where we're going to pick up the story this morning. Acts chapter 4, verse 23, it says, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So they go back to the church. They go back to this, this little new fledgling church that's, that's been founded there in Jerusalem. And, and we need to understand a couple of things about this church. The first is that they are a spirit-filled people. They are spirit-filled people. And, and for those of you who may not understand what that means, let me, let me sort of explain it to you. A person who um, understands the truth that they were created by a perfect God and they were created to be in relationship with that perfect and holy and righteous God. We were created in his image. However, uh, we walked away. We broke faith with him. We rejected his reign and his rule over us. We became sin. We walked willingly into darkness, and because of that, we deserve the wrath of God. We deserve God's righteous judgment against us. And there was no way out for us, but God sent his one and only son, and he came to live a substitutionary life, and he comes and he lives this righteous life on our behalf, the life that we couldn't live. And he takes that substitutionary life, and he offers it as a substitutionary sacrifice on the cross, He substitutes himself on the cross and he makes this exchange and he takes away our sin and he gives us his righteousness and he dies for us. And in dying for us, he takes the righteous wrath of God that was was due to us and he takes it on himself. And in his death, our sin dies. And in his resurrection, our spirit is made alive. In his ascension, we too join him in the heavenly places seated at his right hand. And that's where we exist spiritually. See, see a person who, who embraces the life of Jesus on their behalf, the person who's, who says, I take Jesus' life, I take Jesus' death, I take Jesus' resurrection for me. I can't do anything. He's already done it, but I believe in what he's done, and so I take that for myself. This person is called a Christian. That's what a Christian is. But you see, this Christian also gets something. They get a gift. They get the Holy Spirit to come and live inside of them. I want to go back to that parable of the talents for a minute. That parable is representative of different things. The the master in that parable is representative of God who gives gifts. The servants in that parable are representative of all of humanity. They're representative of us and what we do with the gifts that God has given us. The talents are representative of those gifts. And you know what? God gives us a host of gifts. Everything that we have that is good comes from him. You can use this parable to talk about a whole bunch of different issues. We could talk about truth. The fact is truth comes from God. And if you have the truth of God and you live out of that truth, then to the one who has, more will be given and you'll understand deeper truth. We could talk about faith. Faith comes from God. It's a gift of of him. And if you've been given this gift of faith and you live in this faith and you walk by this faith, then to the one who has, more will be given and you'll understand even more and have even more. We could use this parable to talk about um, people's talents and abilities, people's individual gifts. God has given each one of us abilities. And if we take those abilities and we use them for his purpose, then to the one who has, more is given. And you get to see a deeper experience of working and and living for God. Well, we could use this this parable and we could talk about material wealth. 
That everything that you have, financially speaking, it comes from God. And if you take the material wealth that God has given you and you use it for his purposes, then you'll understand what true wealth is. To the one who has, more will be given. Now, I'm not talking about prosperity gospel here. I'm not saying that, that, that somehow you're going to get rich if you give money to the church. That's what we're talking about. But what I'm saying is, is if you use the gifts that God has given you and you use them for his purposes, then, then you'll understand what true wealth really, really is. But do you also see that the Holy Spirit for a Christian is a gift? That God himself gives us himself. The Holy Spirit is a gift from God, and the Holy Spirit comes upon the Christian, and he takes up residence inside of us. See, these people here that Peter and John are returning to, they are spirit-filled people. Um, on the day of Pentecost, the, the disciples are gathered together in an upper room, and there's about 120 of them there, and, 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 and they, they're waiting for what Jesus promised them would come, and that's the Spirit of God coming down on them, and it happens, and they look around, and they see that, that, that there's these tongues of fire over everyone's head, and they get to see a visual uh, representation of something that's happening to them spiritually as they're receiving the Spirit, and then they go out, and they proclaim the gospel, and when they proclaim the gospel, 3,000 people come to know Jesus. They, they believe in Jesus. They embrace him. They're baptized, and they too receive the Spirit. So th- these, these people that, that Peter and John are returning to, they're, they're a Spirit-filled people, but they're also a diverse people. In Acts 2, verse, uh, verses 9 through 11, it says this, these are the people who heard and believed in the gospel. They're Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. This is a pretty diverse group of people. Different languages, coming from different places. How is it that such a diverse group of people can come together and have such a single-minded focus and purpose? We're going to see that. This is a really diverse group of people, spirit-filled group of people, and they're probably anxious and waiting for Peter and John to be released so they can find out what happened. Verse 24, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. The NASB uh, is a little bit more literal of a translation. It it, it says that they lifted up uh, their voices to God in one mind. This really, really diverse group of people lifted up their voices together in one mind. These people are, they're in full agreement with one another. They're on the same page. They're for the same cause. They are truly united in every sense of the word. They know what matters. See, this is what happens in the church of Jerusalem. They're a spirit-filled people who are so diverse, and yet they have this this unity of of purpose. Here's what we're going to do this morning. Um, We're going to talk about what we see these unified people do. There's four things that we're going to see them do. Um, And then we're going to correlate each one of those things with a question for us to deal with in in regards to the Holy Spirit, to examine ourselves. So there's four things that we're going to see what they did. Then we're going to follow that up, and we're going to ask how it was possible that they did it. And lastly, we're going to find out why. We're going to go into the motive of, of, of not just these people, but to our own hearts. And so let's, let's begin. The first, uh, first aspect of what we're going to see about what they did is this. They know the scope of God's authority. They know the scope of God's authority. Look at verse 24. They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. 
Here's this diverse group of people, and they all have the same theology, the same understanding about who and what God is. Sovereign creator. In creation, that, that God, he's made everything that we see, taste, touch, smell, all the things that are around us. God is creator over all of this, but, but he's more than that. It's not that just this, this creator just started creation like a top and sent it spinning, and he's just sort of sitting back and, and watching to see what happens to it. No, this is a sovereign creator. And not, not only did he start it, but he's holding it in his hands and he's guiding it along and he's, he, he's changing its direction and he's, he's making it go the way that he wants it to go. He is sovereign creator. These people, when, when they acknowledge this, this God who has saved them, the one that they point to is a sovereign creator over them. They know the scope of God's authority and that it's limitless. And so a corresponding question for us is how does your life as an individual and our life as a community affirm or deny his sovereignty? Do you live a life that demonstrates that there's a God who's in control of everything? Do you have that kind of assurance in the way that you live? Or do people look at your life and think, wow, this person is they're freaking out all the, con- the time. That they have no stability. They have, they're, they're consciously anxious about what, what's going to happen next. They, they say that they're a Christian, and they believe in their a sovereign creator who's got everything in his hands, but they don't really live like that. When people look at us, do they, do they see that? Remember, to the one who has, more will be given. Second thing to see, they pray God's words to him. Look at verse 25. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. This is Psalm 2. Um, The Holy Spirit uh, communicates these words to David. They come from David's mouth. They come out of David's pen. But these are prophetic words, right? These are God's words. They're praying God's words back to him. They're praying God's words back to him. Uh, Hebrews 4 says that that God's word is alive. It's powerful. When we pray God's words back to him, we are aligning our will to his. We are demonstrating a listening ear to what he has said. How do you know when you tell your kids to do something that they heard you? They repeat it back to you, right? If you, if you tell your kids, moms, you tell your kids to do something. Sure, mom, what did I tell you to do? I don't know. You don't know. By praying God's words back to him, we're affirming that we're aligning our hearts to his. They're praying God's words back to him. Corresponding question to this is, do we pray God's words? Do we pray God's words? Are we praying scripture? How often? What words of his do we pray? Remember, to the one who has, more will be given. Third thing to see about what they did. They understand or understood God's plan. They see the scriptures being fulfilled right in front of them. Look at verse 27. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They understand God's plan. They, they, they see the words of scripture 
coming through the, the Holy Spirit to, to David. It's prophetic, and they're actually seeing these words coming true right in front of their very eyes, that there's Pontius Pilate, there's, there's Herod, there's these earthly rulers, and they're, and they're rising up against God's anointed, against his Messiah. That's Jesus, and they're condemning him, and they've killed him. And you could look at this and say, well, this is God's plan? Do you realize that in, in all of, of, of history, redemptive history, since it's the very beginning of time, there has never been a moment where God has slapped his hand against his forehead and said, man, I didn't see that coming. Like the Garden of Eden, they reach out, they take the fruit, right? God's not saying, I put that tree there. Why? Didn't see that coming. Right, like that that we would we would get to the point of the cross and, and Jesus sending his son and, and, and he's abused, like, oh I didn't think he even treated him that way. And he's falsely condemned. Oh, whew. They're they're crucifying him, and God's like, ah. Like, do, do you understand that that there is a plan at work? And these people understand God's plan. That that all of this has happened so that redemption could be bought for us so that we could be brought back into relationship with God. This is the plan. They understand God's plan and what God's doing. And so the corresponding question for us is, do we understand? Do we understand God's plan for our lives? Do we understand God's plan for, for our community? Are, are we looking at our lives and going like, oh, we're blown away by things that are happening to us. Like, I didn't see that coming. We expect that life is going to turn out differently. We expect more blessing than, than we've gotten. We didn't see COVID coming. We didn't see the election coming. We didn't see all of this other stuff, and we're reeling from it. Like, why would we reel from this stuff when we, when we have a sovereign God who's in control of it? God has a plan. And they understood it. Last aspect of what they did is they wanted to participate in God's purpose. They wanted to participate in what God was doing. Look at verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So um, they have a, a, a Lord who was killed as an enemy of the state and crucified. Uh, they are, are following a savior who um, has been condemned by all the religious authorities that surround them. Their beliefs, to say the least, are unpopular. They are beginning to suffer persecution. These are the beginning pangs of it, but they can see it coming. They believe things that are not acceptable to the community in which they live. They are going to face opposition. And so what is their response to that? Lord, save us. No. They're not asking for deliverance. These people are not asking for a way out. They're asking for the courage to go through. They're asking for the courage to, to endure. Because they follow a Savior who could at any given moment call down legions of angels to save him, and yet he didn't. Instead, he went through. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That's who our Savior is. And so these people, they're not asking for a way out. They're not asking for an escape plan. They're asking for courage to face what God has for them so that they can proclaim the gospel. And they're saying, God, give us the courage to proclaim. Give us the words. And while we're speaking your words, will you work your hand? Will you work your miracles so that people will, will hear our words and see your works? 
And they'll see your works and they'll hear our words and, and, and they'll come together and there will be this, this powerful movement and it will make a difference. We're not asking for a way out. We're asking for the courage to proclaim the truth. Corresponding questions for that. How do our lives individually and corporately reflect participation in God's purpose? Do people look at us and look at how we live and do they see something bigger, something true, something powerful that is leading us and guiding our lives? Or do they just see individuals who are just trying to get by? Do we have that purpose? Do they see people who are just trying to avoid pain, just trying to avoid difficulty? See, to the one who has, more will be given. And it's this difficulty that I want us to return to that first question that I asked. So we, we just looked at, at what these people did, being filled by the Holy Spirit. Now let's ask the question, how is it possible that they did it? This very diverse group of people, how can a diverse people act with such a single-minded agenda? Now see, uh, here's the world's answer to that. Uh, they would look at what happened in Acts and we'd look at this first century church and they would see that um, there is persecution there. There is opposition there. Um, not only from the Jewish religious leaders, but also from Roman leaders to, to the Emperor Nero and, and the persecution that happened to, to all of these Christians. And, and, and somebody would look at this through a worldly lens and, and say that what has caused this unity in this church is persecution. You know, we, we could compare uh, the church in China today with the church in America. We could say that, you know, in China, the church is actually thriving and growing in spite of the fact that it's being persecuted. And, and some would say, maybe it's growing and thriving because of the persecution. Whereas in America, the, the church seems to be dwindling and dying, and it's facing no sort of real, not real persecution. And so the question is, is does, does hardship, does tragedy, does, does persecution lead to unity? Right. Um, I read a book uh, some years ago. I picked it up this week and, and reread it. Um, it's called Tribe by a guy named Sebastian Younger. And um, uh, Younger, is, he's, he's not a Christian. Uh, he's, a, he's a naturalist. He doesn't um, believe in, in God. At least his writings uh, display um, no attribution to, uh, to, to God whatsoever. Uh, but he was a war correspondent. And he, um, he would embed with troops, and he reported on wars from Bosnia to Iraq to Afghanistan. And he writes this book called Tribe, and it's, it's really kind of about um, how people enduring difficult things come together in, in such a, a unique and powerful way, in, in a unifying sort of way. And he writes this um, at the end of his introdu introduction. He says, this book is about what we can learn from tribal societies about loyalty and belonging in the eternal human quest for meaning. It's about why, for many people, war feels better than peace, and hardship can turn out to be a great blessing, and disasters are sometimes remembered more fondly than weddings or tropical vacations. Humans don't mind hardship. In fact, they thrive on it. What they mind is not feeling necessary. Modern society has perfected the art of making people not feel Necessary, And what he says is that through uh, trial, through difficult circumstances, through tragedy, uh, people realize that they're necessary and they come together. 
and they unify. And so he examines a whole bunch of things from history. He looks at um, the, the, the Battle of Britain and, and the bombings that took place in, o- over London in, in World War II and how those Londoners came together underground in the bomb shelters and, and were unified and worked together. Um, he, he talks about what happens in, 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 in Bosnia when, when so many people were just uh, daily, daily encountering snipers and, and bombs and, and how these people were able to survive by coming together. Uh, he looks at human disasters where, uh, like in a coal mine where uh, there's an underground explosion and, and a bunch of miners are trapped underground and, and how they were able to come together and function and, and survive. Natural disasters, how people come together after an earthquake or, 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 or a hurricane. And, and despite their differences, despite uh, maybe their, their, their income levels, despite all the things that before the, the, the natural disaster took place would, would keep them apart and they would never even speak to each other or look at each other or, or anything like that, how, how afterwards they come together and they share and they live together in this, in this unity. Um, he, he goes on to talk about um, how in our country we're so divided over so many different political issues and how polarized we are as a country. And he points to the fact that after 9-11, we came together, though, for a brief period of time. And and what he says is is that that in order for the United States, in order for our people to come back together in unity once again, it would take such a huge, tragic event that would force us back together. And so the question is, and, and undoubtedly, undoubtedly opposition can breed unity. That's not a question here. But Is it the only source of unity? Is the only way possible for people to come together and be unified for them to experience persecution and tragedy? Because if it is, the new community church is gonna have a real time, hard time unifying. Because the reality is this, most of us have a higher income than most people in Greene County. We're not facing economic hardship. Most of us, all of us, are not worrying about police coming through those doors and arresting us. We're not worried about being drug out in the street and shot for what we believe. I have never been arrested for proclaiming the gospel. If the only way we can, we can be unified is if we suffer persecution, then at least in the immediate future, that's not going to happen for us. But you see, there's another way that we can be unified. And it's what's being talked about here in Acts chapter four. Look at verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, I was really hoping that a bolt of lightning would have happened when I read that verse, but it didn't. No matter. To those who have, more will be given. These are a spirit-filled people. We saw that at the beginning. And a spirit-filled people who, who understand the sovereignty in, of, of God together and they embrace his sovereignty. They're, they're, they're aligning their hearts with him by praying uh, God's very words. They understand God's plan and God's plan comes first and they are on board with achieving his purpose. A spirit-filled people going back and, and, and in the power of the spirit, they, they are doing what those, those, those good servants did in the parable of the talents. They're taking what God is giving them and they're investing in it and to the one who has, more is being given and the fullness of the Spirit is coming upon them. They're filled with the power of the Spirit. And so what do they do? They go out with more boldness and more courage to proclaim the gospel. 
See, how it is that a people of such diversity and such different backgrounds can come together and be unified with such a single-mindedness is that they are enabled to do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. God himself makes it happen. That's the how. Let's talk about the why. Go back to that parable in Matthew 25. Jesus said, to the one who has, more will be given. But he follows that statement up. And he says, to the one who doesn't have, even what he has is taken from him. And it's that picture of the third guy who had the one thing, the one talent, and he put it in the ground, and he brings it back, and that one talent is taken from him. If you take what you have and you bury it in the ground, if you take what God has given you and you, and you put it in the ground and you don't use it for his purposes, that even what you have is taken from you. So we see an example of the first statement here in Acts 4. Do we see an example of the second part of that? Do we see an example of, of, of what Jesus says is that the, the person who, who doesn't have what he has is taken away from him? We do. I'm not trying to preach a second sermon here, I promise. But, but right after this, this passage that we just read in, in, in chapter 4, it ends with a guy named Barnabas, and he recognizes that he has something that's been given to him by God that he can use for God's purposes. It's a piece of land. And so he sells it. And he takes all of the money from the proceeds of that sale and he lays it at the apostles' feet. He's going to use what God has given him for God's purposes. Now, I'm willing to bet that he got some accolade for that. that people patted him on the back. and Well done, Barnabas. Man, that's a really great example for us. Thank you. But people see what he's doing and they emulate that. But there's this one couple at the beginning of Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, and they see what he's done, and they decide to do it too. They, they, they sell a piece of land, only they hold back some of the proceeds of that sale. They bring the rest, they put it at the disciples' feet, and they lie and say that they're bringing all of it. And Peter basically says, you didn't have to do that. If you wanted to hold on to it, you could. Why did you lie? I know that you've lied. Why would, would Satan put it in your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, is what Peter says. And he falls down dead. Right there. And they carry him out and bury him. And it says that people were, were full of fear over this event. A little while later, his wife comes in, and Peter asks her, did you sell this land for such and such a price of land? Yep, sure did. Dead. Dead. Why? It says that these people, again, they, they heard about what happened, and they were filled with fear over this event. And the person that, that understands Scripture is probably thinking right now of other places in Scripture where we see something similar. When God said that the Sabbath day was holy, that it was holy, and a man goes out and he picks up sticks, and instantly, dead. When they're transporting the Ark of the Covenant from one place to the other, and it's this, this holy box that's overladen in gold, it's got these golden cherubim on them, it's called the mercy seat, it's actually placed in the Holy of Holies, where, where the Shekinah glory of God, the Holy Spirit sits, so to speak, in, in this Holy of Holies, over this box. This holy ark of the covenant, it's being transported from one place to the other, and something happens where it's faltering, and it's falling off the wagon. And people who are not supposed to touch it, they reach out and try to save it. Dead. And we would look at that and be like, it's, it's just a little white lie that Ananias and Sapphira told. It's just a guy picking up sticks. It's just people trying to save a box from hitting the ground. Why would they instantly killed because of this? It's because you don't touch the holiness of God. You don't mess with the holiness of God. You don't make it small. You don't demean the holiness of God. Do you understand that, that the church is 
this living temple, according to Paul, that, that is being built up with these living stones of believers and we're coming together and we're being built up and, and we are being filled with the presence of God, the Holy Spirit in us. Do you realize that this is a holy thing and we're not to take it lightly? We're not to take it lightly. And, and we have to go to that question, Why? Why do we take part of this? Why, why, do we, why do we gather? Why do so much people give their, of their time week in and week out and their, and their treasure and their talents? Well, why do we get involved in house church? What is our motive for all of that? Are we really about the purposes of God? Are we coming to give what, what God has given us to, to him or are we coming to take? Because Ananias and Sapphira, they were coming to get an affirmation. They were coming to take. They were coming to be honored. They were coming to get rather than to give. Is that us? Why? And, and before I, I try to remove the speck from your eye, I got to pull the plank out of my own. A few years ago when I, I took this job, I did not come here for a title. I didn't come uh, so that I, I, would, I would see hundreds of people looking at me and, and watch me as I talked. I, I didn't come for, for, for any of the, the, the special accolades of, of doing I didn't come to, to escape the grocery store that I worked at. But is that why I stay? And if God were to tell me tomorrow to go back, would I be like, no, I can't give this up. I can't give this up. A couple of weeks ago, it was during the, the, the second gathering, it was you guys. Five of you fell asleep. Five of you fell asleep. You guys don't think I can see you, but I can. <laughs> and that bothered me. Like, I saw five of you asleep, and, and, and I, I was trying to, to stay on track. And I was so bothered by that. And I, and I left, and I'm like, why am I bothered? Oh, I know. My holiness has been compromised. Right? My, my holiness has been offended. What a small man I am. The part of this, I have to look at my heart and I have to analyze why do I do this? And part of it, part of it is that I get affirmation from this. I experience, I get from this. And if God were to tell me tomorrow to give it up and go back to the grocery store, it would be really hard for me to do that. You see, there's something wrong in here. I'm Ananias. And this is a holy thing. This is God's thing. It's not mine. Why are we here? Why are we doing this? Are we, come, are we coming together to take part in what God is doing by the power of his spirit? Or are we coming to get something out of it for ourselves? So if you find that, that you're in that same sinful boat with me, what do we do? We go back to the cross. We go back to the cross and we be reminded of the truth. And we ask for forgiveness. And we leave our sin there, sin that Jesus paid for long before we ever committed it. And we take the righteousness that he gives us and we walk in newness of faith. And so that today I stand before you and I say, today, God, you be glorified.
then what I give would be honored. In my relationships with my house church, that I, I would do the same, that I would come and I would give because I'm about his glory and about what he's doing. And to the one who has been given, I can receive more. You see, it, it, it's about, it's not about quantity, it's about, it's about influence. That if we turn down ourselves and we turn up the influence of the Holy Spirit, we allow him to flow through us, then that's when we experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And that's when it makes a difference. The one who has more is given. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, spent a good deal of time with you this week repenting. Thank you for your grace and your forgiveness for me. Thank you for forgiving me for the times when I use this holy thing that you are building for my own glory. And I pray, Father, that, that today you get all of it. I pray that today that you receive all the honor and the glory for what happens in this room. Lord Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for robing me in your righteousness. Thank you for for living the life I couldn't, paying the penalty that I deserved for rising and giving me new life. And Holy Spirit, on behalf of, of our people, we turn our hearts to you and we ask not for deliverance, not to avoid pain and suffering, but that you would give us the courage and the boldness to walk through proclaiming loudly the gospel. In the name of Jesus, amen.